Alrighty, we're going to read from Mark chapter 14, starting at verse 17, um, all the way through to the end of the chapter. When evening came, he arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining and eating, Jesus said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and to say to him, one by one, Surely not I. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, the one who is dipping bread in the bowl with me. For the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for him if he had not been born. As they were eating, he took bread, blessed and broke it, gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will no longer drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will fall away, because it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Peter told him, Even if everyone falls away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus said to him, Today, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he kept insisting, If I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And they all said the same thing. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he told his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. He said to them, I am deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and stay awake. He went a little farther, fell to the ground, and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping. He said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Couldn't you stay awake one hour? Stay awake and pray so that you won't enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once again, he went away and prayed, saying the same thing. And again, he came and found them sleeping because they could not keep their eyes open. They did not know what to say to him. Then he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The time has come. See, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let's go. See, my betrayer is near. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, suddenly arrived. With him was a mob with swords and clubs, from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. His betrayer had given them a signal. The one I kiss, he said. He's the one. Arrest him and take him away under guard. So when he came, immediately he went up to Jesus and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. They took hold of him and arrested him. One of those who stood by drew his sword, 
struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. Jesus said to them, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I was among you teaching in the temple and you didn't arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all deserted him and ran away. Now a certain young man wearing nothing but a linen cloth was following him. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. They led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests, the elders and the scribes assembled. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the high priest's courtyard. He was sitting with the servants, warming himself by the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they could not find any. For many were giving false testimony against him, and the testimonies did not agree. Some stood up and gave false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another not made by hands. Yet their testimony did not even agree on this. Then the high priest stood up before them all and questioned Jesus. Don't you have any answer to what these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest questioned him. Are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, Jesus said, and you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, Why do we still need witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What is your decision? They all condemned him as deserving death. Then some began to spit on him, to blindfold him and to beat him, saying, prophesy. The temple servants also took him and slapped him. While Peter was in the courtyard below, one of the high priest's maidservants came. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. But he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about. Then he went out to the entryway and a rooster crowed. When the maidservant saw him again, she began to tell those nearby, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing there said to Peter again, you certainly are one of them since you are also a Galilean. Then he started to curse and swear, I don't know this man that you're talking about. Immediately, a rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered when Jesus had spoken the words to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Uh, We continue uh, our looking through Mark's account of Jesus' life in chapter 14. There's many verses there. And actually, as you possibly noticed, we didn't start from verse 1, but we'll hopefully get there in good time. 
We've been looking at Mark and his account of Jesus and Mark is dead keen that we would understand three things about the person of Jesus and responding to him. Firstly, uh, who is Jesus? His identity. Why has he come? His mission. And what does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to serve him? What does it mean to respond to him rightly? And today, in a sense, we're on very precious ground Because here in Mark chapter 14, we see, in a sense, very clearly, most clearly, his identity and his mission. And uh, as Jesus invites his disciples into why he came as a substitute to die in our place as a sacrifice for our sins. And there's four sort of ideas I want to cover today as we look at Mark chapter 14. Don't worry, the last two aren't very long. So just in case you've got your timer out and you're looking at your calendar or whatever it is, uh, I've sort of figured there's 70, how many verses here? 75 verses in Mark chapter 14. Even if I spent a minute and a half on each one, we'd be here until like four in the afternoon. Uh, Maybe. Uh, My maths is probably not all that good. We're looking at the predictions of Jesus, the payment of Jesus, the person of Jesus and the promise of Jesus. Well, let's look firstly at the predictions of Jesus. We see here Jesus' amazing authority right the way through Mark chapter 14, even to the point of where he's being arrested. We see his authority in understanding what was going on. And he makes these great predictions in Mark chapter 14. We didn't read it today, but at the start of Mark chapter 14, we notice the context here is the Passover. And we'll talk a bit about Uh, that as we go along but the Passover you might remember is where the Israelite nation got together and commemorated and celebrated their release out of slavery in Egypt and uh, en route now then to the promised land and uh, there was up to maybe an extra it was said maybe it's an exaggerated number, but an extra million people came into Jerusalem during the Passover time to celebrate and to commemorate the Passover. So there's a lot of people in Jerusalem celebrating the Passover. And in Mark chapter 14, verses 1 onwards, we see Jesus' first prediction where he tells his disciples to go and get a room for us so that we can prepare the Passover. And he says to them, go into the city... Okay, the city of Jerusalem, going to the city, look for a guy who's carrying a water jar. Follow the man who's carrying the water jar to the house that he goes to. Find the owner of that house and say to the owner of that house, where is the room that, where the teacher may eat and, and have the Passover, celebrate the Passover with his disciples? And the guy will say, well, here it is and it's all ready. And that actually happened. I mean, it seems quite implausible, but Jesus' prediction is very clear. And then the predictions become more personal and have a a more negative uh, uh, tone to them, uh, disturbing even. There's the betrayal, verse 18. Jesus, as they recline at the table and as they're eating the meal, as they're uh, there, Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. None of them at this particular point seems to know who, who that is. It's not like Judas has got a big sign over his head, that's me, or he's wearing a red suit with horns and a pitchfork or whatever you know, cartoon imagery you might be thinking of. No way. They, they had no idea. Is it, is, it, is it me? Is it I? 
They don't agree with Jesus' prediction? Surely not. They don't agree with it. It seems impossible, but Jesus' prediction is clear. And then there's the scattering in verse 27. Jesus says, you will all fall away, for it is written. And he quotes from Zechariah 13, that where God will strike the shepherd, I, this is God speaking, God the Father will strike the shepherd, that's Jesus, and the sheep, that's the disciples, will be scattered. They don't agree with this prediction either. It seems unimaginable that we will flee and run away from you, but Jesus' prediction is clear. And then there's the denial in verse 31. Peter declares, even if they, all the other disciples, fall away, I certainly will not. But Jesus says before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. Peter insists emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others, verse 31, all the others said the same. It's, they don't agree with his prediction. It just seems unthinkable that the disciples would, would uh, deny and, and you know, leave him. And, and, but Jesus' prediction is clear. And then, of course, there's the arrest in verses 32 to 42. Jesus and the disciples are in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is praying. And sadly, instead of keeping watch, the disciples uh, fall asleep. Uh, you know, understandably so. But Jesus says, verse 41, The hour has come. Look, the Son of Man is to be delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's go. Here comes my betrayer. He'd already told them in chapter 8, 9 and 10 that he would be delivered in and, and up to be killed. And now he says the hour has come. The time has come. And immediately it seems. Uh, he says this. There is Judas on cue with all of his soldiers that came with him. Uh, Jesus' predictions are clear. They might seem implausible, impossible, unimaginable, unthinkable, but he is in control. And by the end of Mark chapter 14, every one of these predictions come to pass. Jesus is in control even in the situation of perceived weakness. Well, secondly, there we're looking at the payment of Jesus. The payment of Jesus. The context here in Mark chapter 14 is where the disciples come to celebrate the Passover. As I've already said, this is the, the time where they commemorated or remembered their deliverance out of slavery in Egypt. The Passover was celebrated it was actually the last night or the final plague that was dished out on Egypt because they would not let God's people go. They had enslaved God's people. They had brutally enslaved them. They had committed genocide against them. God said, it's time for my people to go. No, we're not letting them go. Plague after plague after plague. The last plague was where the angel of death would visit Egypt and bring about the death of every firstborn. However, the angel of death would pass over some of the houses. The houses where 
A lamb was killed and its blood, some of its blood was put around the doorposts of that house. That house was saved. That house was spared. It seems to our modern mind a very, very odd thing. But sacrificing was very common of an animal, very common. And they were actually to eat that lamb. That was their last meal in slavery. It was their last night in Egypt. They were to eat the lamb in a sense that was to sustain them on the flight out of Egypt. And the blood around the door frames of the house was to protect them from death. The, the death of the lamb brought them life. The blood of the lamb, not sitting in a bowl, not on the floor where they slaughtered it, but applied where God said to apply it, saved them. There was a death in every household in Egypt that night. It was either the death of the firstborn son to those who did not follow God's rescue plan, or it was the death of the lamb on behalf of, as a substitute for, that household. And here, Jesus, in the context of this Passover meal, redefines the whole concept of Passover. He's about to take this most sacred and significant remembrance of the nation of Israel, of God's people. He's, to, he's about to take it and to reinterpret it not surrounding a lamb that was slain, that was sacrificed and whose blood was put around the door frames so that the angel of death would pass over. But he redefined it in terms of his death, the sacrifice of his body, the giving of his blood, the pouring out of his blood for them. Not to bring a deliverance out of slavery in Egypt, but to bring about a deliverance from slavery to sin and all of its consequences. And he's about to do this in great love in order to fulfill the scriptures, the Father's plan. It's a new covenant, actually. It's a covenant in my blood, he says, poured out for many, verse 24. This is my body which is given for you. This is my blood poured out. It's the eternal plan of God to bring sinners into friendship with him. And this covenant was prophesied and promised and predicted in the old covenant. Uh, the word of Jeremiah in chapter 31 says this, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the how people of Israel, with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. There's the Passover remembrance. Because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. It won't be like that covenant, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I'll put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbour or say to the other, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them. To the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sin 
sins no more. That's in the Old Covenant. This is written in the Old Covenant. So for the Israelite nation today, for the Muslims today, where is that fulfilled? Well, it probably isn't fulfilled in their hearts and their minds yet. They don't think that's happened there yet. But it's happened in Jesus. And Jesus says so. This is the new covenant. In my blood, for I will forgive your wickedness. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's the eternal plan of God. That's why Jesus says the Son of Man will go just as it has been written of him. It's God's plan. Listen to some of the old covenant promises as well. Speaking of the suffering servant. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, acquainted and familiar with pain and grief. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. There's the striking of the shepherd by the father but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed crushed for our iniquities the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed we all like sheep have gone astray each of us has turned to his and our own way but the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's the plan of God to deal with humanity's biggest problem and it's our sin. It is our sin that is the barrier between us and God. It's our rebellion against God. It's our natural state. What we need is forgiveness so that we can know God, have a right relationship with him, and Jesus has come to fix that problem. He has not come to say, oh, you're a good lot of people. What you need is just live a little better. We need forgiveness. We need Christ. And he came in great love to give himself as a sacrifice, the payment for our sin. And it is the prospect of that payment for our sins that Jesus confronts in verse 34 in the garden as he prays to his father, his soul being overwhelmed to the point of death, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Even at the prospect of confronting the consequences of our sin, he is overwhelmed to the point of death. And so he asks, Abba, Father, Daddy. He prays this twice. It's recorded once, but he prays it twice. Everything is possible for you. 
Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Exactly the line of our second song today. Take this cup from me. It's the cup of God's wrath that you and I deserve to drink because of our rebellion against him. But here Jesus willingly, humbly and lovingly will take it for us so that we would not have to drink one drop of God's wrath. So that we could be freed, so that the angel of death would pass over us and we could be right with God. In the Garden of Eden, Adam dislodged a stone on the side of the mountain of humanity, which sent forward an avalanche of human rebellion and condemnation against God. And as it hurled down that side of that mountain of human history, it gathers pace and size. And Jesus stands below, his arms open wide, and allows that crushing weight of that mountain of guilt and condemnation to descend upon him for every sin and of, of me and you and of the whole of humanity. He stands at the bottom, bringing that landslide to an end. In the Garden of Eden, Adam dislodged a stone. In the Garden of Gethsemane, where he prays, Jesus stared into that cup of God's wrath. It was that avalanche coming towards him, which he saw, and yet which he was determined to meet. Willing, obedient to the plan of God. We can be sure, friends, that our sins are great when we look at the payment needed to satisfy our rebellion. We can be sure that there is no other way for us to be right with God when we hear the prayer of Jesus to his Father. If there is any other way, may it be so. And we can be sure that our sins are dealt with because Jesus goes the way that the scriptures foretold God's plan, giving his life a ransom, as Mark writes in chapter 10. And here in this room, before they go to Gethsemane, the disciples are led into the preciousness of a greater salvation a greater deliverance, a greater deliverer, a greater covenant than that of the exodus out of Egypt, which the Passover remembered. So friends, we have the diagnosis here. We are all sinners in need of forgiveness. It's not just a matter of being around Jesus or being around Christians. I think Judas sort of ticks those boxes, would he not? But it is a matter of a heartfelt response, personal response to Jesus. Please forgive me. Acknowledging and trusting in and applying his work on the cross for us. 
and there's room at the cross for all of us. And I think as I read and studied and thought more about these verses, see the amazing love of God to welcome sinners. These poor disciples, weak, faltering, fearful. I mean, that's me. And Jesus, well... I think there's a loving reinstatement in verse 28. After I've risen, I'll see you in Galilee. Well, the final moments that we have, let's just briefly look at the person of Jesus and then the promise of Jesus. Until now in Mark's Gospel, we have had an unfolding picture of Jesus' identity and his mission. On many occasions, you might have remembered this, he told people, no, 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 don't tell me, don't tell others that I am the Messiah. Don't tell people about what I've just done because he didn't want some sort of messianic frenzy to be whipped up ahead of the hour, ahead of time. And as Jesus in verses 61 is initially silent before his false accusers in fulfilment of the prophecy in Isaiah, he was oppressed and afflicted yet did not open his mouth. When the high priests ask him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one, before all of them, the chief priests, the Jewish council and the high priests, Jesus openly, clearly and undeniably states his identity. He says, I am the son of the blessed one. I am the Christ, I am the Messiah, I am the Son of God, I am the Son of Man, in verse 62, recalling the image of Daniel 7, of the Son of Man who had all authority, all power, all dominion, whose rule and reign will never end. There it is. Make no mistake. Jesus is clear on his identity he is none other than God in the flesh. And he is betrayed. He is ultimately condemned to death, not because of what he had done, but who he claimed to be. It's the person of Jesus. Have you got Jesus clear in your mind? It either means everything if he's true, if it's true, it either means absolutely everything or it means absolutely nothing at all. If he's a liar, if he's off his face, if he's, it means nothing at all. But if it's true, it means everything. Well, the promise of Jesus, uh, finally, you will see the Son of Man. You will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One. They thought they had Jesus on trial. He says, you'll see me. You'll see that Daniel 7 figure of the almighty, all ever ruling, conquering one. Coming in the clouds of heaven. And the humiliation of the Son of Man within history will be matched by his return in majestic glory. Together with his people to judge every human that has ever lived. Are we ready to meet him? Do we see Jesus for who he is? The suffering servant who died for our sins, the eternal ruler and king of God, king and servant, 
Saviour and Lord? Do we see him? And he's going to return. He's going to return in the clouds, brothers and sisters. And he will take us home and bring in the new creation. And he will set everything right. And he will judge the world with righteousness and truth. And all of our struggles and pains will be a distant memory. We will actually be more than that. We will not remember them. And we will be ushered in to the new creation. Jesus will do it because he is God's king. Are we ready to meet him? Repent and believe the good news. Let me pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for your Son, who was obedient to the point of death for us. Help us to appreciate again the, the payment and the person and the promise of Jesus and help us to bow humbly before him, seek forgiveness and live for him, trust him as our eternal King, returning Judge and loving Saviour. And we pray in his name. Amen.